0: When I decided that my mental health and my time with my children was more important than continuing kind of in this this path that it is for the clinician is when my own mental health changed because just getting those two hours back a night and just not having the stress of knowing that my day didn't end until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it was a huge relief.
1: Welcome back to the Work From Home Forever podcast. I'm your host, Don. And on today's episode, we've got Leah. Leah, welcome to the program. And please tell us about yourself.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Don. Uh, Yes, my name is Leah Durante. I am a family nurse practitioner turned integrative health coach who now works 100% from home. So I spent 10 years in the office, busy primary care, family medicine, newborns to 90-year-olds, and found... It was a situation for burnout for me and my patients weren't getting better. So my prescription pad and hundreds of thousands of prescriptions later and referrals and Recommendations and people continuing to kind of cycle through the same challenges with their mental health, with their physical health. And COVID for so many of us was a very, very difficult time, particularly in medicine. I was in the office seeing patients through it and it opened my eyes to possibility and the desire for change, both for myself and more importantly for my patients to really see people actually achieve the wellness that they want so i started my own business
1: perfect so leah i'm so glad you reached out i know you commented when you reached out that our show our program doesn't have really a strong representation of remote healthcare workers so glad to have you on here i know you touched on it a little bit but can you walk us through your in-person clinical career as a family nurse practitioner and Go into a little bit more details about that transition into a fully remote role as an integrated health coach. Integrative Uh, health coach,
0: integrative health coach, yes.
1: Integrative, okay, please.
0: Yeah, well, so I was trained at the University of California, San Francisco, so it's one of the top medical schools and nursing schools in the nation. Did great, top of my class, worked in federally qualified health centers, so really working with the underserved after graduation. Those are really busy practices. I was started my career before the Affordable Care Act, so before people had access to health insurance. So a lot of our patients were sliding scale and uninsured. And that was probably the first moment very early on in my career, three or four months in, where I had a young woman, a 26-year-old mom come in and her son was having a severe asthma attack and they did not have insurance and I'm a new clinician. And if if there's any clinicians listening or just a peek inside our minds when you're new, the thing you're most scared about is you're just so concerned that you don't miss something. You're so concerned that you don't miss the headache that is actually a brain bleed and someone's gonna end up in the hospital. You're so concerned that you're gonna prescribe the wrong thing. And I had this woman, this mom, and her son was not breathing well and we stabilized him in the clinic and they didn't have insurance and in that clinic we have a program where patients could buy medication at a discount because we were a federally qualified health center and the two inhalers that the, her child needed were ten dollars each and she looked at me square in the eye and she said leah i cannot afford both inhalers there won't be food my son can have one what is the one inhaler that he needs to go home and the answer is he needs both there is no medically appropriate or moral answer that would let him walk out of our clinic with just one. And so, of course, we figured it out and got the family both inhalers. But I went home and I was trying to understand why albuterol, which is the rescue inhaler that if people have had asthma or a bad cough, oftentimes it'll get prescribed for you. This medication that's been around for 60 years that should cost $4 at Walmart, like Lisinopril and all these other generic medications is still on formulary. It's still patented. And what they do is the medicine doesn't change, but they change the inhaler device enough so that whenever a patent runs out, they can they can re it. And so this mom who should have had access to two medicines for both under 10 bucks was being forced to make that choice and she looked to me as the expert in the white coat with the stethoscope around my neck to make that decision for her. And it struck me that one i was i was so new and had never been asked something like that to make that kind of choice i think that's why that that experience stuck with me but it wasn't the first and it certainly wasn't the last and over the preceding 10 years in practice i continued to run into health insurance challenges of things not getting covered of medications that patients couldn't afford of a system that really doesn't look at how to help people have vibrant mental health, how to have physical well-being that looks at prevention, that looks at what really people can do to improve their health. And so though that experience and then the continued experience of being in busy clinics. So I'm in primary care. You come to me when you've got a cold, you come to me to manage your chronic health conditions, did a ton of women's health care, so you come to me for your pap smear and your routine medical exams. And when that door closes, you know, and we as clinicians, we're seeing 20 to 30 patients in a day, that's that 15 minute model. And people are really struggling when the door closes and people can be real and people can share what's actually going on for them. The tears come, men and women both. (laughs) This is not a gendered thing. And the struggle and the challenge that people are really facing becomes really apparent. And then I was tasked with Helping people figure out, okay, where do we go next? What's the assessment? What is the plan that we could create for you based on the back pain you're having, the trouble sleeping that you're having, the anxiety that you're having, the acid reflux that you're having? And let's figure that all out in 15 minutes. And that model is really built on this idea that if I can prescribe the right thing, I'm going to quote unquote fix you. And there's a pill for every problem that you come in. But that's not true and that didn't work and it took me 10 years (laughs) took me 10 years of following this path to finally understand and be honest with myself that it actually wasn't working that people weren't getting better and you know they say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results and i am a researcher and I cared and I sat and I was present and I listened and I'm reading all of the up-to-date research and we're trying these things and it's not working. So for me, my work is really rooted in first and foremost, my desire to serve my patients and to see them. I got into medicine to help people. I got into healthcare to give people vibrant lives that they can go out and live and work and have relationships and love life and enjoy it and do it well. And coming to terms with the fact that the system wasn't working was really hard, but I think really important. And that was part of my willingness to kind of courageously step out and say, this needs to be done a different way. And what does the research say? Because in grad school, we studied that people actually do better when they healing community. So when I was in grad school in the early 2000s, you know, all the rage was these group visits, these group visits, these group visits. This is how we're going to cut down healthcare costs. This is how, this is what the research shows. People do better with their diabetes, with their high blood pressure, with their depression when we meet in groups. And that's not been implemented. That's not the model that we have. We have a 15 minute model. And so I, decided that it was time for me to do something different. you know. And I think it ultimately comes down to to the courage and putting my patients first. So that's kind of been my journey to, to where I shifted from primary care to my own model.
1: So Leah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that story with the mom having to make that difficult choice or feeling like she had to make that difficult choice mm-hmm. about which inhaler is best when she needed to, it's heartbreaking. And I'm sure it's it's one of many throughout your career when you're working as a, a nurse practitioner practitioner in the in the clinical setting. So I, I definitely understand the the history, it makes sense. And it's it's unfortunate that now it's a numbers game, right? It's it's about cost is how do you manage the cost and provide health care for for all? You didn't say this, but I, I was thinking of the term the a pill for every ill, right? That's just kind yeah. of the, the model that we have today. So mm-hmm. you went into a great detail about the integrative healthcare that you saw was a gap. So talked about the transition, why, and mm-hmm. wh- what's different? Like, how is your approach different with your patients in, in this coach setting compared to your prior clinical? Like, what have you implemented to improve the greater care and outcome rather than just prescribing and, and just prescribing? Them? Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think it's really looking at what are the elements of health that, what are the determinants of health that make the greatest impact? And so we actually know that access to prescriptions, health insurance, things like that, it only has about a 10% impact on the outcome of someone's overall health. Then you've got genetics, you've got the environment, and more vast majority, 40 to 50%, depending on the research, is behavior. Is what are we doing after we leave the clinic and leave, after you leave my office, What are your behaviors? It's not really a mystery. We know, you know, good health comes from managing our stress, getting regular exercise, minimal alcohol intake, not smoking, and getting eight hours of sleep. Like, we know that. The trouble I have found is that people know what to do, but how do you do it? What is the behavioral change? And so my work is really predicated on moving the locus of control from me the expert in the white coat to you the expert of your life and your health and an internal locus of control and really looking at behavioral models for change that help people move that close that gap from i know what i need to do to actually doing it Uh, because i i found that was the piece that was really missing and then it's so interesting in Again, in graduate school, it's like you talk all this theory, you have to read all these studies on theory, especially in nursing, which I really appreciate. The nursing model looks at the whole person. The nursing model says you're not just your cells and the biology and what's happening at the cellular level. You're a person with relationships and work and hobbies and a spiritual practice and all kinds of different aspects to who we are as people who then also perhaps has diabetes or who else who also struggles with anxiety and that model actually honors the wholeness of the person but that model doesn't get used in clinical practice so we talk about it in theory but then we don't use it in practice and so what i decided to do with my work is really center that idea that you're a whole person That your mind, your body, your spirit, your relationships, your work, your environment, all of those things are really important to building resilient mental health and vibrant physical health. And so I incorporate both a behavioral model for change that actually helps people change, puts the locus of control. You are the expert of your life within you. And then incorporates kind of a more holistic view of the person so that we're addressing all the roots, so that we can get the most robust
1: change. Perfect. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. And I think maybe, so that's your approach to the patient, uh, yeah. to your clients. Yes. But I think in the survey, one of your reasons for transitioning to a fully remote role was for your mental health, uh, for well being, and being there for your family. So how quickly did you see an improvement in these areas of life? when you made the transition.
0: Very significantly. I mean very quickly. And one of the sides of medicine, um, that we talk about some, but again, if you're if you're not a clinician listening, you you may or may not know, but we do our nine hour day. Most of us don't take a lunch. We're seeing patients through. There's always a question to answer, an email to respond to, a lab test to respond to. I went through two pregnancies in clinic and I joked that there wasn't even time to go to the bathroom, which if you've been pregnant, you know how challenging that is. And we do that and we give and we show up and we listen and it is an emotionally rewarding and simultaneously emotionally taxing process to be involved in some of people's most challenging and difficult moments in their life. And then you go home and you do that for nine hours and then you go home and see your kids, cook dinner, do the normal routines. And then you get to chart for one to three hours, depending on how your day was and how far behind you were. And so there's all of this charting that happens. And rarely does that charting impact or improve the patient care or the patient outcome. It's really just a recording function. And it start, you know, charting initially was for clinicians to communicate what was happening with the patient. So if a different clinician saw the next patient, we'd be on the same page. We'd know what the plan is, where are we going, what's the expectation. And it really, especially with the electronic health record, has moved into this just insane robust collection of data that, again, I don't know where the evidence is that this improves patient outcomes or helps us be healthier, but the burden of all of that work has fallen on the clinician. So you need to not just be excellent at your craft of diagnosing and understanding what's going on with somebody, but then you get to be kind of an administrative hamster on a wheel at night clicking boxes. And when I decided that my mental health and my time with my children was more important than continuing kind of in this this path that it is for the clinician is when my own mental health change because just getting those two hours back a night and just not having the stress of knowing that my day didn't end until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it was a huge relief. So it's a win-win. My clients do better and I get to work in a way that's sustainable and humane and empowering for me too and my family.
1: No, that's great. I'm a healthcare recipient, so I don't really understand or know what, what has to happen or needs to happen in that, Mm -hmm. um, in that world. So I wasn't aware that, uh, there's a lot of extra work outside of the traditional hours. So, and I can, I can only imagine that that's a lot of burden, uh, a big burden for clinicians to have to, you know, manage that data tracking. Right. And especially if you don't Mm -hmm. see the, the end result or what the purpose of it all is, especially, uh, for the benefit of the patient, I'm sure that is, uh, you know you're like a hamster. It's a hamster wheel. Yeah, it's a, a hamster constant, wheel. It's uh, a hamster
0: wheel. Yeah, which yeah. is a really defeating place to be when that's the work you're doing. You know.
1: Right, right. I, I guess just a follow up question. So, were there any surprise mm-hmm. benefits that you did not anticipate working from home that uh, you were ple- pleasantly surprised with once you were doing that?
0: I mean, I just love it. I love the flexibility and the freedom. It is amazing to be able to take my kids to school and pick them up and, and this might be different. So, you know, I've been a nurse practitioner. That was my kind of role, except for a few little jobs out of college originally, but to create my own schedule, you know, when, when I walked into the clinic, I had patients scheduled at 8am every 15 minutes, except for an hour over lunch. So literally every moment of my day was predetermined set, scheduled. So to have an open calendar and to be able to find the work that's meaningful to me and impactful for me has been really fun to also allow a little bit more creativity into my day. You know, it it felt very rote, routine. I'm kind of a machine. I'm kind of a cog in a wheel as I showed up in the clinic. And now to have, to get to do fun conversations like this and to kind of talk about possibility and, and really just imagine a different future is, is a gift is a real gift.
1: No, thank you for sharing. I, I didn't really think about it from that perspective where every day, you know, four 15 minute slots throughout a given hour, you're going to have four different patients, four different conversations. I'm sure a lot of these conversations become very routine regardless of the patient. Right. And I'm sure I, I didn't think about it that way. Like the flexibility that you have now is. This is amazing, right? It's it's every day is different. So
0: yeah. So that's been, that's been a fun, unexpected, unexpected benefit.
1: Nice. So Leah, you mentioned that you were providing healthcare as a nurse practitioner through the pandemic. So mm-hmm. from your perspective, how much did that experience working through the pandemic influence your decision to leave clinical practice?
0: <sighs> so seeing people during the pandemic because I wasn't in the hospitals. So I wasn't dealing with people who were severely sick with COVID. I was actually dealing with the mental health fallout of COVID and a lot of the anxiety and fear and worry and depression and from isolation and people not seeing each other and just so much anxiety. And Yes, each patient, there can be some routineness to the day. I really strive to be somebody who is present to each individual that's in front of me. And that compounding effect of seeing how poorly we're doing at addressing people's mental health and all of these diverse individual people kind of coming in, I could just see we were failing. And I think for me, I had to try to find a solution. I couldn't spend the next 25 years of my life continuing to kind of pretend that this was working. So I think for me, the severity that I saw within COVID, and and again, not severity from the disease COVID itself, but kind of what it brought forth in our culture, in our society, was a pivotal moment for me to make a choice about how am i going to contribute to this world how am i going to impact this world how am i going to be a part of how is my work going to be a part of the betterment of people and 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 so for me it just it really came to a head and and, and to add on top of that the the stress the personal stress of not knowing especially like march 2020 we right. were open yep. We didn't know what was happening. I had two babies, you know, I had young kids at home. I didn't know what I was bringing home to my kids. I didn't know what was happening. And of course we had our protective, you know, equipment, um, but you still don't know exactly what's, we didn't know so much then. It was a big strain. And I think those two things together really became the moment for me to see a bit more clearly so that then I could choose differently.
1: Hey there, Work From Home Forever fans! It's Don, your friendly host. If you're as passionate about the show and remote work as we are, we've got something special for you, our exclusive merch. Explore the fantastic collection at wfhforever.com shop, featuring a range of official goodies curated by the Work From Home Forever team. Not only do these items let you showcase your love for remote work, but they also make fantastic gifts for your virtual teammates. Plus every purchase goes a long way in supporting the show. We've teamed up with Etsy to fulfill your orders, ensuring a seamless and trustworthy shopping experience. Head over to wfhforever.com slash shop. Now discover the perfect style for you. And thank you for being a part of our community. Now let's dive back into our exciting episode. Sure. And it also sounds like you're doing double duty, essentially, right? You're doing your nurse practitioner role. And I'm sure you're hearing a lot of, you know, heartbreaking stories about and, and playing the mental health counselor role, even though you're not necessarily trained for that role, you know, as you as you meet with all these patients that are struggling physically. And like you mm-hmm. said, from an emotional standpoint of uh, you know, everyone had, had no idea how things were going to play out.
0: Right. Well, and I would say primary care is probably about 40 percent mental health care. And I would actually okay. argue all physical healthcare is rooted in mentally how we're approaching life. But yes, I'm not a I'm not a therapist, <laughs> but there is there's a significant amount of counseling that goes into every patient encounter or client encounter.
1: Understood. No, I appreciate the insights on that. So one of the trade-offs that we talked about, or you talked about, was losing the regular paycheck as a W-2 employee when you went to work for yourself. So yeah, five years down the road, do you think this bet on yourself pays off?
0: Heck yeah. I have no doubt. Good. But I will say, I think medicine, nursing, doctors, physical therapists, one of the really secure parts of that job is the known pay, you know. You go to grad school, you become a nurse practitioner. I know where I'm going to come out. There's no climbing the corporate ladder. Like I I am what I am. You get me my degree, I get the job, I get the paycheck, and there is there's a lot of security and stability in that. And I think that's probably one of the main reasons why even though clinicians are burnt out everywhere, you know, the the conversation between My peers and I is, it's the system that's not working for anybody, um, but it's really hard to walk away from that security.
1: So it's kind of like the concept of, uh, I know there's a lot of corporate level employees, they call it the golden handcuffs, right? You get to a certain level, Mm -hmm. you've got, Mm -hmm. you know, bonuses, you've got uh, a high salary, you've got benefits, et cetera. You know, we may have a car allowance that the company pays for, and it's just tough to walk away, even though may not be fulfilling and, and you may take a look around and am I really making a difference? So it's it sounds like it's pretty similar to that.
0: It's very similar to that, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. A- has there ever been a point, you know, during this time since you've been on your own where you said, I think, I think I'm gonna look back just because that security, that W2, just being an employee and not having to, you know, do the different things an entrepreneur does. Have you ever, have you felt that pressure to maybe uh, go back?
0: Of course, that's I think very human. And I but I don't see it as a problem to be evaluating the situation. And and a lot of the work I do is helping people that security piece, that that need to feel safe. Again, it's ironic. We can say there's the golden handcuffs, or you can say, I, you know, I'm the nurse practitioner, I've got the established job, but nothing is safe, nothing is secure. You can get fired, I could a clinic can close, a, you know, everything can shift in a moment. So in some senses, it's a false sense of security, even though there's a regularity to the paycheck. And that's where I think understanding how our physiology actually works has been really helpful for both myself and my clients. Because when we understand that need within our own nervous system and within our own body for security, we can build that for ourselves, even if it doesn't come in the same way it's come in the past. So it gives you, the empowerment to maybe step out and and do something that might have been previously perceived as scary or dangerous or stepping into the unknown so it's funny a lot of the things i train you know and coach and teach my clients about how to use that for behavioral change i've used a lot of the techniques just even in my own entrepreneurial journey to kind of understand i'm okay like thing you know things are going to be be okay and and you just keep moving forward
1: perfect Really well said. And, uh, I know it's, it's human nature, right? Like sometimes you have to second guess yourself, but I agree with you. I think with your attitude, with your approach, with helping your, truly helping your patients, I think, uh, you know, five years, probably even sooner, right? This bet really pays off and you're going to see a lot of the success, right? And and looking back to your W2 days, you're going to be like, I I wish I did this sooner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So good.
0: And important to always measure what is the measure of success. True. Is the measurement of success reaching exactly like all those markers of those golden handcuffs, like you said, or is the measure of success that I wake up in the morning and I'm filled with energy and vibrant and excited to get to my desk and do my work and I'm contributing in a new way and, you know, maybe I didn't need the designer handbag. (laughs) It actually didn't give the satisfaction that the, you know, late night retail therapy thought it was going to, um, and, and, and being honest about that and being okay with that. You know, we, we sometimes get conditioned in our society that there's a certain definition of success and what that looks like, but it, really important for people to kind of figure that out what that, what it really is for you.
1: Sure. And if you really think about it, do you really need that designer handbag or that you know, the, the nice brand new car when you're not commuting anywhere? You know, that's another perspective too.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep.
1: So good stuff. So let's talk about the, the, the office setup. So many of our guests have talked about the importance of a dedicated office space and your Mm -hmm. role is a bit unique since it's not the typical office job with spreadsheets, PowerPoints, Word documents. So what's unique in your office setup that you need to support your patients?
0: I mean, I have to have Wi-Fi and I have to have childcare. (laughs) So I think one of the big shifts for me, and particularly men or women, moms or dads, um, but that assumption, if you've got kids at home and you're working from home, kind of the implicit idea that I can do it all, that I can manage the kids doing their homework and still work, or help them make their snack or all those things that kids need. And really being realistic, I remember early on realizing there's this freedom, there's this flexibility, this is amazing. And when I really came to terms with it, I was like, hey, wait, no, nobody expected me to see 25 patients in the office and take care of my kids at the same time. Like, <laughs> It's an unreasonable expectation to think I'm gonna be doing kind of parent duty at the same time as work duty. So I, I think for me, the biggest piece is essential for me as childcare and having the dedicated time where I get to put on my work hat and be the clinician, be the coach and not have to be mom.
1: Perfect. A couple more questions here for me. So your best advice was to muster up the courage and just go for it. This is when you decided to pivot. And so how did that conversation go with your family? Was it a lot of negotiation? Was it and was everybody on board? Like, if you can walk through that process, yeah. what are the pros oh, and cons list look like yeah. when, when you guys talked it through?
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's an, a really, it's a great question. My process was probably four years in the coming, you know, so there had been some dissatisfaction at work and some conversations about burnout, um, some kind of ex- exploration of trying to figure out what's next. At the beginning of COVID, when it became really clear that this was not something that this traditional role was not something that was going to work any further, um, my husband is an entrepreneur in the live event space, and so and we were living in California at the time. Um, so his industry literally shut down for eighteen months. There was there was no events. So it was a negotiation. It was a well. I do have a steady paycheck, and healthcare is going nowhere right now. <laughs> so I will happily show up and see my patients and then when he's incredible and a super brilliant entrepreneur and was able to pivot a lot of stuff and do some virtual events kind of before anybody sensed how long we were going to be in that space. And so once we got to a place where things felt secure for our family's sake, you know, he's always been really supportive of me and open to my growth. I think One of the best parts of our relationship is a willingness to like continue to grow. And, you know, he's been supportive and helpful and just, yeah, renegotiation and looking at what we have right now and what's the possibility for building into the future. So really having that vision casting conversation when you make a move that necessarily kind of takes you out of what you've been accustomed to, like, what does that look like? concretely, and then what is the potential for the future? And I think, again, one of the benefits we didn't anticipate is just how much happier I am and how much that makes everything better. So that was an unexpected benefit. It didn't happen right away. It had to happen once there was some pieces in place to make it right for our family.
1: What's the phrase? Is it a happy wife, happy, happy life? Yeah, that's what they say. I think it's true. (laughs) No, that's great. I mean, I think it's, I think it's great to, to talk through that. It sounds like you had to seed the conversation, right? Where it wasn't just like, Hey, this job need to go and we'll figure it out. You know, it was like, okay, we need to map this out. We need to plan. We need to figure out here's the milestones that need to happen. You know, his, Mm -hmm. his, sounds like his events business need to pick back up or get back on track. Mm -hmm. It could be, a more real conversation i guess so yeah. but yeah that's 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 super cool so thank you for that i guess on the flip side so when you made that decision how was how was that received by your bosses when you said i am moving on and leaving leaving the practice
0: okay so when i left clinical practice i worked for a father and a son in private practice so i had done the federally qualified health center and then in private practice and from a small community. So saw a lot of my patients at the grocery store, at church, at, you know, walking around. And I'd been at that practice for eight years at that point. So really pretty well known in the community. And I will say that one half of that partnership was really not excited about me doing my own thing, quote unquote, and kind of sent me some messages that were somewhat threatening and degrading to me, but, My experience on the whole is clinicians really interested in what I'm doing, clinicians really curious, clinicians really excited that I'm looking at the evidence of your nervous system and your subconscious mind and the endocannabinoid system and all these things that we read in our peer-reviewed journals, the science is all there that the current system doesn't make space for or time for. So, no, I mean, I think... that's why I I mentioned you need courage. Like there's going to be people that don't like what you're going to do. And I think sometimes that comes often from you show people a possibility that they're not willing to acknowledge for themselves. And that is a really hard truth to kind of like have a mirror shown to yourself. So to not take it personally and to lean into the people who are encouraging you and being supportive and curious about what you're doing and how it's helping people. But I mean, I hesitated to answer at the beginning because it, it it wasn't a super well-received experience.
1: Great. I love that answer. So Leah, you talked about the need to have a community with others who work from home. So how did you find this community and how do you support one another in an online forum?
0: Yeah, I think it's so important. I mean, I think that's the difference, right? Instead of going to an office and kind of having peers to pick each other's brain. In in medicine, we're constantly kind of shooting things off of each other. Have you seen this? What what, what would you look for? So for me, it was building that network. Um, And so fellow entrepreneurs who are working from home, Having people who understand the dynamic and kind of it is different to be working at your house instead of in an office. And I really did that through networking online, you know. So people who work from home tend to have kind of more online presence and just slowly built that. So I have a few partners that, you know, folks that we meet maybe once a month and kind of talk through our goals or what our vision is for the month to kind of keep each other on track. You know, I have people I have check in with on a weekly basis so that we're, you just have that grounding point. So you're not alone because it it can be very lonely, just you.
1: Perfect. So Leah, thank you so much. I appreciate the time you spent with us. If you've got a couple more minutes, we got some rapid fire questions. If, if you still have some time. Sure, I'd be happy to. Perfect. So question number one, what's one thing employers do that demotivates their employees?
0: The most demotivating piece of being an employee, in my experience at public clinics and private clinics, is asking people for ideas for change and then not implementing them.
1: That's a good one. So I've
0: been a part of every quality improvement committee there is, and to not see things implemented is really demoralizing.
1: It's, it's funny, you mentioned that, because in the corporate world, we have like, you know, our, our pulse check-ins every two, every six months. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that is the lowest scoring question. It's a consistent question, right? Like, do I believe there's going to be real change coming from this survey? And it's always, no, we don't believe no. it. So that's, that's a really great answer. Question number two, from your perspective, what needs to happen? to reverse the trend of healthcare workers leaving the industry?
0: I think one of the simplest changes to improve quality of life for clinicians would be figuring out the charting situation. And I think that there is some options with AI and transcription and things like that. It is really an impossible ask to be asking people to work and you're not paid for your extra two to three hours of work you know you you're just paid for your day in the clinic so i think the the charting has to be fixed you, we can't be asking people to work 14 hour days that's Perfect. the easy fix the larger fix is what do we do about health insurance and the pharmaceutical industry and actually getting people to improve their health since we see our numbers in the united states continually decrease in terms of the overall health of our population but I, I actually think technology could help the medical industry, um, and really reduce some of the burnout.
1: Perfect. I appreciate that. And we were talking before we recorded, so I know you mentioned you've got a podcast as well. And one of the things I'm hearing a little bit about is, um, the rise of AI. You just talked about it. So from a fraud standpoint, how concerned are you with the advancements of voice AI technology and the amount of content of your voice out in the world?
0: I guess I have a different mindset about content. I think we're moving towards the place where information is free and everybody should have access to information and AI is gonna make that access even more and more available. I am really looking at, okay, we've got information. How do you make information actionable? How do you turn the advice an employee gives you on a survey or a clinician gives you in an office and actually make change? How do you make it at an organizational level? How do you make it in an individual person's life? It's not a problem of having a lot of information out there or content, or if you know my voice gets repurposed to share some information, information, again, we're, we're moving towards information being free. The question is, how do you take information and make it actionable so that you can do something about it? And I believe that that is still a very human endeavor because that the humanness takes into account understanding the individual and helping the individual internalize that knowledge in a way that becomes part of them and who they are and how they behave. Um, and, and for me, that's, I don't see machines doing that or robots doing that. And so there's plenty of blue sky opportunity for, um, the work that I do.
1: No, I, I love the, the positive approach. I think I was thinking of more, you know, nefarious, uh, uses like, I so the reason why I brought this up is I, I listened <laughs> to a podcast recently where I wasn't aware of this, but, uh, they took Johnny Cash's. You know, AI, Johnny Cash, essentially, sure. right from all the interviews and his songs and et cetera. And they had him do like a Taylor Swift song. So I'm thinking to myself, again, from a, a podcast st- standpoint, our voices are out there and yes. could at some point, our voices or someone else's voices be used to misrepresent something that doesn't, you know, align with our brand or beliefs or or whatnot. So um that was, you know, but again, you took it from a very positive level, which is great. I was thinking of like, you know, here's my I mean I think anything's people.
0: possible. Have you put on any VR headsets yet?
1: I have. Yeah. My my son has uh one of the whatever the meta ones. So those are interesting. Yeah. The
0: meta one, yeah. Yeah, well, we we just got one at our house, and and similarly, I was like, this is going to be so interesting. Like, am I gonna? Is there going to be a persona of me in the metaverse that's not me?
1: <laughs> we'll see. It's we'll all possible in five years, though, so. yeah. or even sooner. Right? It's it's changing so quickly. Mm-hmm. All right, last question I have for you: in three mm-hmm. words, how would you describe your workplace persona?
0: Curious, courageous, and generous.
1: Sounds sounds wonderful. Sounds great. So thank you again for your time, Leah. Um, Absolutely.
0: So great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: So how can folks get a hold of you for your integrative health consulting practice?
0: So I have a website, LeahDuranti.com, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Leah NP, and that's the handle on Instagram as well and i'd be honored to share a little bit more with anybody who's listening about this innovative way of looking at behavioral change and and vibrant health and i have i do have a fun ebook that kind of talks about what's missing in the current healthcare industry. And it's a lot of science that's over 30 years old and has a ton of validation to it, but we just have not incorporated it into practice. So if people are kind of curious about what I'm pulling from, from an evidence base, um, that's at leahdurante.com ebook.
1: Leah, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the insights. Again, thank you for reaching out and providing the perspective of healthcare workers who have transitioned into remote work. And we will definitely link to your LinkedIn page, your website, to the eBooks for all the tools so all our listeners can find you and, uh, and connect with you. So thanks again for your time. I appreciate you being on the show.
0: Absolutely. Grateful to be here. Thank you.
1: Thank you.